Good morning. We are glad you are here. Welcome to Crosspoint Fellowship. If you are a visitor with us this morning, we want to let you know we really, we say it every week because we mean it every week. It is a privilege to worship with you. We are gathering. We believe our, believe our Lord is present with us. And we are, as Clint has said, we're singing true things back to him about him and singing it to each other. And to get to do that as a gathered people that Christ has brought together is incredible. So if you're a visitor, we want to welcome you. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series this morning called Elder-Led Congregationalism. For some of y'all, that might sound like an outright oxymoron. We'll work through that. Um, but I, but I, before we start, um, I actually want to do the, the stand and greet thing this morning because it's so fitting as we're talking about being aware of those around us. So y'all, stand, greet those around you. Uh, even though there may be a little space here in the second service between you and the next person, make the walk and say hello. And make sure everyone's greeted this morning. Y'all can come on back, grab a seat. Uh, before I pray, I do want to mention what uh, Clint mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, in case anyone came in since then. We've got these little books over here on this table. It looks a bit like an altar. It's a little weird, but it's just a book table. Um, there's no worship of anything going on over there. But there are these books called Understanding the Congregation's Authority, which is a big part of what we're talking about in this series, which will be anywhere from an 8- to 12-week series, depending on how it shakes out. So we've got a lot of work in front of us, and we want to make sure y'all are equipped with good resources. And we also, as we'll consider in the sermon, want to make sure that you guys write your questions down and ask the elders. And I'll, I'll reiterate that here a little later this morning. So let's pray, and we'll get into our text. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. As we gather this morning to consider uh, your design for your local church, we humble ourselves before you. Lord, we also want to do as we do every week and pray for another local church. This morning we pray for Westview United Methodist, and we're extremely grateful for the brothers and sisters in Christ at that other local church that have been serving so consistently for so many years here in Greenville. We're thankful for the witness they've had here in Greenville for many years. And we pray specifically this morning for Pastor Dylan Lee and just that you would have him walking closely with you. My, our hope is that if he's married, that, that, he is, um, that his marriage is healthy, and we pray for that for so many, not because we think something's wrong, but because we want him to have healthy marriages. We know that's so central to healthy pastoral movement. And we also just pray for his walk with you. Our hope is that as they gather this morning, they are gathering around you as he preaches and teaches from your word. I pray that he would be leading well in worship. I pray they're enjoying you this morning. And Lord, we continue to pray. Um, really as we've done for nearly 15 years, that any spirit of competition that continues to exist between churches, that, that it would go away. That we would realize we are on the same team, we serve the same Lord, and uh, we will spend the same eternity with one another in Christ. Uh, what a privilege that is, and I pray that we would cherish such a reality. Lord, we pray this morning for our time together. I pray that our hearts and our minds are focused. I pray that as we've certainly trusted you in the preparation of our time this morning, that as we walk it out, as I preach this sermon, that you would give me the proper words to say in the right way at the right time, and that our hearts and our minds would, would hear what is from your word. And if there's anything that I say that's not from your word, I pray it would fall on deaf ears and there would be correction quickly. Lord, we humble ourselves before you 
you are so good to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned that this is a new series called Elder-Led Congregationalism. And generally at Crosspoint, we pray expositorily or expositionally, depending on how you want to say it. And what that means is we generally go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've covered a lot of books of the Bible. And this is a little bit of a different series in that we're still certainly using our Bibles. And the Bible will be the, the, the case for every sermon is that you want your sermon, uh, the main point of that sermon better be the main point of the text. And so we're working through the text this, this morning. And this series is a little different in that it's, we're focusing on church structure. We're focusing on how we're supposed to be doing things around here, authority, kind of a who's in charge of what around here. And the goal at the end of this series, which is a little bit different, is a goal of actually making some changes to our church constitution and their changes regarding authority and governance. And their changes that very much involve all of you. And so this is a series that is a little bit different. And we want to give you a heads up up front that that's kind of the end goal is to, to take a look at what God's word says, to take a look at our church constitution, to do what we need to make sure they are as close as possible and to make any necessary changes. So that's a little bit of a different goal. And we want to tell you that up front. We are 15 years into the life of this church and we are still learning. That is important for us to establish. First thing this morning, we are 15 years into the life of Crosspoint Fellowship, and we are still learning. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is the case for our church and should be the case for every follower of Christ. There is a humility in your walk When you realize that the more time you spend with God and his word, the more you are taught, the more you are reproved, the more you are corrected, the more changes that may need to be made, the more trained you become, the more complete you become, and the more equipped you become for the work that God has called us to. Elder-led congregationalism, it's a mouthful, it's going to become familiar, elder-led congregationalism is about the work that God has called each of us to do as members of one another in Christ in the local church. As we begin this significant sermon series, I think it's very fitting to lay some ground rules for how we approach. I'll I'll use it in quotes, ground rules, because it's not like hard and fast rules, but I think it's fitting for us to, in a sermon series that's maybe a little bit different, to, to lay ground rules on how we approach that sermon series that's a little bit different. And the first thing is this. This is uncharted territory for our church. Like, I'm a little nervous as preacher this morning because this is uncharted territory for our church. I told my wife this morning, I said, I'm so excited. The elders have been working on this for two years, looking at the ins and outs of this, bringing shape to what might be God's best for our church. And I'm so excited. I can't wait to preach it. And I want to sing it. And I mean, I'm floored. But then I'm also like nervous and I want to throw up. And it's sort of all these emotions. This is uncharted territory for our church. Since we constituted in 2003... We have been elder-led, and we are currently elder-led, and we will continue to be elder-led. And in general, members of Crosspoint know what that means. If you're a visitor this morning, you might be saying, what's an elder? Is that like a wizard or something like that? What is, do they have a cool hat? What is that? Um, we'll talk about that later. We've got a lot of details to cover in the sermon series. But if you're a member of Crosspoint, you're generally familiar with that. 
You don't need a whole lot of convincing of the value and the biblical validity of elder leadership. But for Crosspoint, the congregational part is new. And in some ways, we are already in uncharted territory as a church. And what I mean by that is this. In the last year, we have experienced unprecedented growth in our church, 35% growth in church membership in a year. I've been here 15 years. I can tell you that's not normal. That's the Lord's doing. But that, that's, that's sort of some uncharted territory because what comes with that? New leadership dynamics, implementation of Sunday morning Bible studies on and off campus, a growing youth ministry that needs more leadership, an off-campus young adult ministry that needs more leadership, the launch of a second service because we're simply out of space. That's a lot of change in a short amount of time, and I would call that uncharted territory already. And now the elders are beginning a sermon series that will effectively restructure how we view church government. Kind of the who's in charge around here and what's going on and how do we move in that, which will change the way our church constitution reads if everyone agrees. So essentially we're moving from uncharted territory into more uncharted territory this morning. And as we do, some of you might be thinking, man... I thought we were doing things right around here. Like, that is, a, that is an okay thought for you to have. You might be thinking, man, I, I kind of thought we were doing things right, we were structured right, but with all the change and all the additions and all of the, the Bible study changes and the need for more leadership and all these different things, I thought we were doing something right, and now I'm beginning to wonder, is that true? Is Crosspoint rightly doing the right things? What have these last 15 years been all about? And this is where I want to introduce the first ground rule for the morning. And it's simply this. The first ground rule is this. If we approach something in Scripture that we have not seen before, or we have not, it has not been made clear to us before, it is our responsibility to change the way we're doing things. You should be able to go to that next slide and um, take notes this morning. Write your questions down. The first rule as we're moving forward, ground rule, if we approach something in Scripture that we have not seen before, it is our responsibility to change the way we are doing things. It's our responsibility to take that correction, which is one of the purposes of God's breathed out word, and make whatever changes are necessary no matter the cost. I would offer that it's arrogant to approach Scripture in any other way, right? If you're just approaching Scripture for affirmation in everything you're already doing, there is an arrogance about that that is unfitting for the humble servant follower of Christ. This is what we do in every other area of our life. For instance, if, if you are a parent and you come to that part in Scripture where you see that parents are not to provoke their children to anger and you've never seen that before, you as a parent have a responsibility to make whatever changes are necessary in your parenting to make sure you don't provoke your children to anger. In marriage, if you approach that piece of Scripture that says, uh, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, honoring her, as the weaker vessel, knowing that you are co-heirs with Christ to make sure your prayers aren't hindered. If you've never seen that and you come across that and you're a married person, you should say, I should make whatever changes are necessary to make sure that I do what God says, that I seek, no matter the cost, how to live together in an understanding way. This is the case for marriage. It is the case for parenting. It is the case for money. It is the case for friendships. The word informs us, and we do not go to it just for affirmation. Sometimes we need to be corrected. In the case of elder-led congregationalism, this does not mean 
that Crosspoint has just been wrong for 15 years, just flat out doing it right. And it doesn't mean that we as a church are actively resisting God's design, and it doesn't mean that we're resisting his will. It simply means that where we, as a congregation, see something that needs to change, we faithfully trust God to make the changes. And guess what? We're not going to be making any of those changes soon. When we're, when we're navigating this uncharted territory, and you, you, like you have men that are called to shepherd you through that, we're going to move slowly, making sure to answer all the questions. Not, there's not, no Band-Aids ripped off overnight or, or no quick decisions. This is going to take a, an immense amount of sobriety for our body to consider what the Lord may have in front of us. When we as a congregation see something that needs to change, we faithfully trust God and make those changes. We have been abundantly blessed through elder leadership for over 15 years. And I think we will continue to be. We are currently elder-led. We will remain elder-led. The first part of this equation is elder-led congregationalism. It's been a blessing for 15 years. And we feel that adding God's design for the congregation's authority that the congregation has a type of authority, we think that adding that to it is wise and good and may even result in more blessing. When it comes to authority, it's, it's easy to just want to use it as a blanket statement, right? So if someone was asked, who's in charge around here? It'd be easy to say the elders, right? They're leading. Those are leaders. God calls them leaders. They're called to lead us. Who's in charge? The elders. But if you really look at the word of God, what you find when it comes to authority is not just these one type of authority blanket statements. What you find is different types of authority that are, that are designed to, to, um, to tend to certain responsibilities. For instance, there's a different type of authority that exists for the head of a household or for a parent. Scripture talks about the kind of authority that exists for a, for a boss over those who work for the boss. There's a type of authority that the elder has in the body. There's a type of authority that the deacon has in the body. And what we are introducing this morning is that there is for sure a type of authority that the gathered congregation has. And they, and they accomplish things according to God's design. We need to be humble in our approach, though. There is no single right way to structure a church. There's no single right way to structure a church. There are different beliefs within the same faith. Romans 14 outlines it clearly. Different beliefs exist within the same faith, and the result has been there are different forms of church government. There are different, you know, there's Baptists and there's Methodists, and there's, there, there's, there's all kinds of different you know, types of church, and they call themselves Christian, and there's no one right single way to do it. But while there is not one right way universally, in God's word, there is a responsibility on each local church to order themselves in the way that seems the most fitting and the most obedient from what they have experienced in God's word. And we want you to know that the elders feel that elder-led congregationalism is the most fitting and the most obedient that we've seen in God's word. So that first ground rule for, work, for moving forward is if we approach something in scripture we've not seen before, it's our responsibility to change the way we're doing things. The second, as we move from uncharted territory to more uncharted territory, it's really important for you to be able to trust your leaders. Right? We're navigating through uncharted territory. You're being shepherded as a flock by God's design, and it's really important for you to be able to trust your leaders. But here's the deal. Your leaders are not allowed to demand your trust. Oh, how I wish that was that way. Don't you? Don't you wish that you could just look at your spouse or your coworker or your friends and say, I demand you trust me. But trust doesn't ever work like that. Biblically, I would offer that trust is a gift. 
but it's a gift that you're supposed to use wisely. No one can finally earn trust. No one can ultimately keep trust. So if we need trust, what should our ground rule be? And here's the ground rule we're offering this morning. Don't trust your pastors simply by taking our word for it. Trust us by taking what we say and comparing it to the word of God. That's your responsibility. I'm not allowed to tell you what you believe. And I'm not allowed to command you to trust me. So don't trust your pastors by simply taking our word for it. Trust us by taking what we have said and compare it to the word of God. Anytime a group of elders presents something new to the gathered congregation, it's up to the gathered congregation to decide, do we approve this or do we disapprove of this? Do we believe this to be God's breathed out word or is this not in keeping with God's breathed out word? It's beautiful for accountability. And it, frankly, it makes me feel a little bit vulnerable as a pastor. But if what the elders lead in is in keeping with the word of God, then the word of God in Hebrews 13, 7 encourages you to do this. Obey and submit to your leaders, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Our hope is that this sermon series is of great advantage to you. And that gives you guidance in how you respond as a gathered congregation. The third ground rule is this. Bring all of your presuppositions and your preconceived ideas about elder leadership and congregationalism and meetings and decisions and voting and hold them all up to the word of God. Bring them with you to worship. It feels like I'm saying the opposite of what I should say there, but I believe that is the best. Pastorally, what we would normally say is, it's, it's hard enough to preach from the word and to, and to hope people hear it, so please leave the preconceived ideas at home. Leave the presuppositions at home. Don't bring in all your baggage to worship. Let's just sit humbly before the word of God. There is benefit in that, but I think for this sermon series, I think we're going to have to bring all our baggage, because guess what? We've all got baggage. I do. There's still a part of me, when I hear the word elder, it's like, I'm an elder, but I didn't know what it was for so many years growing up. We didn't have them in our church, and I thought, what is that? And there's a part of me when I hear congregationalism, oh, I know what that is. I grew up in that church, and I do not want to return to that. We've all got baggage. So the encouragement is what to do with the baggage. What do we do with those preconceived ideas and those presuppositions? Well, what you do is you bring them to worship with you. And the goal is this. View them through the lens of God's word. Bring those presuppositions and those preconceived ideas that you have either about elder-led or about congregationalism or about voting or about church structure or order or governance. Bring them all with you and act like this is a pair of glasses and lay all of them down and try to look at them through the lens of God's word and let God's word inform those preconceived ideas and those previous experiences. Every one of us have previous experiences some of them are good and some of them are bad. I sent an email earlier this week urging you to write down all of your questions and ask the elders about them. And before even preaching this first sermon, I've already gotten some really good questions. Some, some have already asked about the balance between elder-led and congregational. Is it like a 50-50 thing? Are we talking about 60-40? Are we 70-30? Are we going 90-10? What's happening around here? It's a great question. Someone has asked... How do we keep from putting too much weight on an elder body? It's a good question. Someone has asked, how do we avoid the divisive nightmares that we've previously experienced in congregationalism? It's a good question. 
Some have asked, are we going to start voting on everything now? And this was a bad idea, right? We're not ever going to vote on the color of something unless it's, I can't figure out something so important we need to vote on the color of it, but let me put you a little bit at ease. We're not voting on all the petty issues. We'll be real clear on what the responsibility is of the congregation to, to make decisions, but we all have these experiences. I grew up in a church that was congregationally led. I never knew what an elder was until I started reading my Bible, and I was like, well, that's in there a lot. Maybe we should do that. And thankfully, the men who were leading Crosspoint early on said, yeah, we're going to be elder-led, but I, I knew what deacons were, and I knew the congregational votes that were always weird, and I knew those meetings that everyone complained about, and I knew the division that came about in those meetings, and I've heard worshipers referred to as giving units in lots of meetings growing up, giving units, not worshipers, but giving units, and I was like, that feels wrong. I don't, I don't want to be in meetings like this where we have to sort through these things, and people disagree, and it gets ugly because we're supposed to divide. We're not supposed to be divided. We're supposed to be um, preserving the unity that we have in Christ. I, what I'm getting at is we all have our baggage, and I just want you all to be honest about it. Bring it with you to worship and look at it through the lens right here like a pair of glasses. Look, look at those preconceived ideas through the word. By the time this series is over, we hope to answer every single question that you have about elder-led congregationalism. So be sure to take notes, write down your questions, and ask the elders. All of our contact info is in the bulletin. Our names, um, our, our phone numbers, and our emails are all right there. We're not trying to hide from you. We are eager to connect with you. And we expect, we are expecting a lot of heavy shepherding through this sermon series, which is why we're moving with these three ground rules, because we want all of the questions answered, and we want you as a congregation to be as informed as possible because we believe it would be of great advantage to you. Now that we have our ground rules in place, let's take a look at the who, the what, and a little bit of the how of elder-led congregationalism. Turn to Ephesians 4 with me. Ephesians 4. We have recently preached through Ephesians, and so a lot of us are, fam are, are familiar with Ephesians and we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verse 15. Ephesians 4, 15. And in Ephesians 4, 15, verse, through 16, it says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body gathered congregation, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Clearly, our Lord cares about the church being healthy, like a body that needs to be healthy, that every, everyone's doing their parts. That is part of God's design. But the first thing we have to see here is this. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. As we talk about church governance and structure and who's in charge around here, first thing is first, church. King Jesus is the head of the church. We have got to start with that. King Jesus is the head of the church. Oh, how many churches take the first step toward disaster by forgetting this important detail. When we forget that King Jesus is the head of his church, we can easily begin to think that maybe the church is mine or yours. If we forget that King Jesus is the head of the church, maybe it's easy for us to begin to think that it belongs to a particular pastor 
or a particular group of pastors. Or if we forget that King Jesus is the head of the church, maybe we could fall into the flawed thinking that it belongs to those longtime charter members. Some of you have been a part of churches where longtime charter members have reminded you, this is my church. We've forgotten an important detail when we say such things. Or maybe it belongs to a subset of deacons. <clears throat> when we go down such flawed paths of thought, we ruin our trajectory from the beginning. If we talked about anything related to the order and the structure of what God's design is for the local church, and we didn't start out with first, King Jesus is in charge, King Jesus is the head of his church, we make a ruin of any efforts we make after that. We are, we are starting to chart a course through uncharted territory, and we're supposed to be facing this way, and we're facing this way, or maybe that way, if we forget that King Jesus is the head of the church. So we have this thing called the church. It has an ability to build itself up in love, according to Ephesians 4, when we are growing into Christ. King Jesus is the head of the church. We're supposed to be growing up in every way into him, and in doing so, we're held together. We, we, we preserve that unity that we have. We guard against division. He's the one that keeps us together as the head of the church. We are equipped, and we're equipped in such a way that we now have an ability to build ourselves up in love. And we end up with this thing called the church. The church would not exist if not for Jesus. Where there is no Jesus, there is no church. What I mean is that had Jesus never come to redeem us from our sins and die in our place on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God that we rightly deserve, and if he had not come and given us his righteousness, imputed it to us to where it's counted as ours and we're clothed in it, if Jesus had never done that, there would be no church. Rather than a gathered congregation, we would be scattered. Do we understand that this morning? That is why it's so important to see King Jesus as the head of the church, because if he had not done what he has done, and he was not seated, reigning, ruling, King of kings, Lord of lords, firmly on his throne we would not be a gathered congregation. There would be no church. We would be scattered, and we would not only be scattered, we would be hopeless. This is such an important detail. If he had not done what he had done, there would be no church. But because he has done these things, because he is seated firmly on his throne in the heavenly courts, as the church, we have a responsibility and an opportunity to look to our king, Hear his words that he gives to us regarding how he reigns and rules in his church and move accordingly. We have a king and we look to him and we say, you're in charge, not us. What do you want us to do? And that is what the sermon series is all about. King Jesus, how do you want us to move in your church? He reigns and rules in his church. And it's interesting because in 2 Timothy, Jesus expresses through Paul that we are to reign and rule with him. The gathered congregation will reign and rule with Jesus. In Romans 8, it says we're called to be co-heirs of Christ. There's a share in the inheritance that is extremely significant that affects the way we move as a church. So let's spend the rest of our time exploring a little more what his design, as the one who is in charge, is as head of the church, Jesus, what is your design? Turn to Acts 14. Acts chapter 14. Some of you in your Bibles, you see on the first page of the book of Acts, it says the Acts of the Apostles. And what this is, is this is this is the early church. This is how it all began. And after King Jesus came and conquered sin and death and ascended into heaven and gave he gave the Great Commission. 
Um, we entered into an era called the apostolic era, and these apostles are those who were charged and commissioned directly by Jesus to go and build his church in the world, to go and gather his people the right way. And so when we read the book of Acts, we can see more of Jesus' plan for his church. And what it says in Acts 14.21 is this. 14.21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, hear that, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So part of Jesus' kingly rule includes appointing elders in every church. So if we're looking at Jesus and saying, you're in charge here, what do you want us to do? He says, I want you to appoint elders in every local church. Every city should have a local church, at least one in every local church should have elders. This is God's design. We see this also in Paul's letter to Titus. You don't have to turn there, but listen closely. Stay in the book of Acts because we're going to look at something else next. But in Titus 1.5, it says, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he gives a list of qualifications for those elders. So God's design is that in every town there should be these local churches. And these local churches, to have good order, go into these local churches, these gatherings of disciples, and make sure that you appoint elders who will lead them. A few verses later in verse 9, we see what that leadership looks like. We see qualifications, and then it says, Paul says of the elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and rebuke those who contradict it. So if we're kind of gathering a list of, okay, God, what do you want to happen in your local church? First thing, you need to appoint those elders to to oversee these disciples, to shepherd these disciples. And what are these elders doing? Well, at the very least, they're holding firm to the word. And then they're, they're giving instruction and counsel through teaching and preaching with that word. And then if there is anyone who comes in and contradicts that word, they're guarding the church against that and giving a defense and rebuking those who contradict it. Turn to the left to Acts chapter 6. Let's continue to look and see what these elders are doing. Acts 6 verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. He's not saying that serving tables and taking care of these widows is unimportant. He's saying it's incredibly important, but we have a problem on our hands. And the problem is the result of bad order in the church at that point. There needed to be some order and some structure brought to make sure that everyone is getting what they need. We know people need the word of God. That is what God is building his kingdom on. His breathed out word. And the elders are saying, we've got a problem over here, but it's not right for us to take this and put it down to go tend to that problem, but we still have to tend to that problem. But it establishes the reality that it is not right that these elders should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. So at this point, we can say that King Jesus is the head of the church. And as head of the church, he authorizes and makes elders responsible for shepherding, leading, teaching, 
preaching, praying over and guarding the church. Or to say it another way, and to keep your notes uh, with, the, with the slides, King Jesus gives the elders the authority and the responsibility to lead the church. That's step one. King Jesus is the head of the church, and what does he do? The thing he does is he makes sure that there are elders in place. King Jesus gives them authority and responsibility to lead the church. And the reason we, we make clear that there's authority and responsibility there is that where you have authority and responsibility from Jesus, you have something called an office when it comes to how the church moves. So that's a church office. It doesn't exist if not for his design. But this first church office is that of elder. Now let's keep reading and see if we see anything else. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. Just look what's happening there. The elders are saying to the gathered congregation, Therefore, brothers, you, gathered congregation, pick out from among you seven men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, because we need that kind of a man to tend to this problem over here. And you pick them out, we will appoint them and lay hands on them. Full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty that is important. These men are called deacons. It says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, that devotion to prayer and ministry of the word is central for the movement of the elder. But here it says, we will do that. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Again, here we have the gathered congregation. It has pleased them. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set before the apostles, who were the earliest elders, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, the faith that is found in Jesus. In my Bible, I wrote, result of good order. When we're looking to King Jesus to figure out how we do things around here, and we do it, and we have these elders in place, and we have these deacons in place, the result of good order here is a multiplication, a forward movement of the word, and a multiplication of disciples. So we can say here, another part of God's design for the church is this. King Jesus gives deacons the authority and the responsibility to serve the church. Very, very important. And like elders, they have their own set of responsibilities side by side with them in 1 Timothy 3. Their own set of qualifications. And the result of this good order where elders are able to do what God has called them to do and deacons are able to do what God has called them to do is that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. If we had a goal as a church, that'd be a really good goal where the word of God is increasing and disciples are multiplying greatly. That is a very good goal. That is in fitting with love God, love people. We don't stray from God to tend to people. We do it in a way where both are going forward and God is glorified in it. Now at this point, you might be thinking, okay, new sermon series, elder-led congregationalism. I, I, I don't have a problem with elders. I don't have a problem with deacons. We've, we've had those for 15 years, both of those, and it's, it's been a blessing. Now comes the part that is not as familiar to us. So I want you to turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. And when I say it's not as familiar to us, is it's not, we haven't as elders taught or preached this yet. I keep wanting to say prot as the form of like taught and teach. No, never mind. Don't worry about it. I don't want to distract you with the prodding. So in Matthew 16, verse 13, 
we're going to read something that's extremely important as we're continuing to gather clues on what Jesus wants his church to look like. And in Matthew 16, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus says to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the proclamation through which everyone who becomes a member of God's church does so. You are the Christ. You, Jesus, are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And look at what Jesus does. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. If we're wanting to know how Jesus is building his church, we're listening real close right now. I will build my church. And it says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. I need keys to get into something or to get out. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, I will give you, we got to figure out who that is, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And look what happens. And when you have those, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Binding and loosing. King Jesus, as the head of the church, is currently revealing something that is extremely important. What he's saying is, I'm giving the keys of the kingdom to you. Who's you? That's what we're going to answer in just a moment. And he says, and when you have those, king, those keys of the kingdom and you're using them the right way, like we don't always use keys the right way. My, when I was younger, my grandmother, um, she was babysitting me and she wasn't a very good babysitter because she never really watched what I was doing. I took her keys and I used them the wrong way. I put them in the light socket. I melted them together, burned my hands. You ever heard stories like that, kids doing that? That's the wrong way to use the keys, right? I didn't know what the right way was to use the keys. But what we're seeing here is these keys are given and when you use the keys the right way, there is a binding and a loosing that happens where the high court of heaven recognizes what the church, this local church, is doing. When they agree on something that is in accordance with the word, the high court of heaven says, yes. When we say, nope, that is not according to the word. We will not do that. We will not reject that. That is a heresy. That leads to apostasy. The high court of heaven says, yes. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Here we see that Jesus will build his church, and part of that process is the reality of the keys of the kingdom. Someone will hold these keys, which are used to permit entrance into the kingdom of heaven through the church. The keys are used to define the what and the who. The keys are what we believe and who we are. And when you're exercising those keys, you have a responsibility, whoever this is, for the what and the who of the gospels. We will explore in thorough detail in the coming weeks and months. In reading this section, one might say, Who's, who do these keys belong to? Who do these keys belong to? We have these keys. They're clearly, these are extremely important keys. Whose are these? Who do they belong? Are they Peter's? Do the keys belong to Peter? Do the keys belong to the apostles? Is Peter going to get those keys, make a few copies, and hand them to the apostles? Or do the keys belong to the church 
that is being built up through this leadership. Who holds the keys of the kingdom? The best way for us to figure out who is holding the keys of the kingdom is to go and look at where they are first used. Where do we next see binding and loosing in the book of Matthew? And it's two chapters later in Matthew 18, just the next page for most of you. Matthew 18, verse 15 says this. We're asking, who do these keys belong to? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is known as the church discipline process that most of us who are members at Crosspoint are familiar with. It's a church discipline process. And it says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge can be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Another way to say the church is the gathered congregation. Those people who gather week in and week out under the name of Jesus, tell it to them. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then listen, this sounds familiar like Matthew 16. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. We're going to spend whole sermons unpacking that little section. But what we can see right now is this. The binding and the loosing, which is the exercise of the keys, is seen here to be done by the gathered church. A responsibility and authority given to the gathered church to bind and to loose. The church here, they're, they're wielded by the church. Notice that Peter is not mentioned. The apostles are not mentioned. Nor are the church's elders mentioned in the exercising of the keys. They are wielded through binding and loosing by the gathered church. The church here, in this section of scripture, is finally responsible for affirming or denying, binding or loosing the validity of a wayward disciple's profession of faith. That is why they are needed for entrance into the kingdom. This literally means that the church's responsibility is to take someone's profession of faith and say, are they walking according to it? Yes, you are one of us. That is the gospel. You are a gospel person, and you are a follower of Christ with us. And inasmuch as someone says, this is gospel, and it's not, it's the responsibility, finally, of the church wielding the keys of the kingdom to say, that is not gospel. You are not walking in accordance with Christ, and you're not one of us. That's a huge responsibility. And what we have to see this morning is that it appears Scripture is saying that responsibility goes with whoever's holding the keys of the kingdom. And these keys belong to you. We're going to have entire sermons dedicated to what the keys of the kingdom are and how we use them. But here we see the church wielding the keys of the kingdom through the binding and loosing in this discipline process. It's an off, it's a, it's a um, affirming or a denying that the church is doing here on the what and the who of the gospel. When we talk about a responsibility in the church, what we have to understand is that it goes hand in hand with authority. What that means is that you cannot finally, um, you cannot be finally responsible to do something you don't have the authority to do. Or to say it another way, humans have no authority except where God gives it. 
But here's the, here's the weight and the burden for the church this morning. When God does give it, it's no longer optional. When God gives you a responsibility and the authority to fulfill that responsibility, it's called an office. And when he does that, you're not allowed to say, I don't really want to do that. I'm not interested in that. You have to be interested in that. To be authorized for such work is to be given an office and you will be held accountable for what the Lord has put before you as responsibility and authority. And it goes even further than this discipline process. Look at Matthew 28. It's the very last part of this book and the last place we'll turn this morning. Matthew 28, 16. This is known as the Great Commission. It says in verse, eight, in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, listen to King Jesus, affirming that kingship. He comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. King Jesus is saying, my father has given me all authority in heaven and earth. And in light of that authority, I am deputizing you. I am giving you the responsibility to speak words as an ambassador on my behalf. And here's what you do. I have all the authority, so you, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It is the responsibility of the gathered congregation to do this. It's the responsibility of the gathered congregation to go and make disciples. And you guys do that through teaching, through wielding the ability with the keys of the kingdom and saying, I know what the gospel is. We can say what it is, and we can say who's, who's walking in it. It is a beautiful design by God. Jesus claims that all authority has been given to him, and then he commissions the disciples who would go on to begin the Christian church to make more disciples. He's commissioning them to be disciple-making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. When we bring all this together, what we find here is another church office known as this, church member. Church member. Or to say it another way, in keeping with our notes and on the screen here, King Jesus gives the gathered congregation the authority to bind and loose regarding the what and the who of the gospel. I want you all to write that down. I want you all to think about it because we're going to be unpacking it for at least a few months. Particularly, that is what we believe and who is a part of us. And, and the reason it's important for you all to understand that is this. No one, no one, including elders, is allowed to tell you what to believe. I, I wish I could. I wish I could just enforce it. No, no, you believe this. I don't have that authority. We'll talk later. That's called the authority of command. And as an elder, I don't have it. Makes me feel a little vulnerable up here because it's sort of like saying, all this that I've preached passionately, don't believe it unless it's right. I'm not allowed to tell you what to believe. No one's allowed to tell you what to believe. We're allowed to give you counsel so that you make a wise decision that is fitting and in keeping with God's design and with King Jesus' plan for his church. Per the keys of the kingdom, agreeing 
on belief is the responsibility of the gathered congregation. That's why the Great Commission includes making disciples and teaching others to obey. It's the job of every single member of the church. As well, no one is allowed to simply admit themselves into the church. No one's allowed to come in here. I mean, people will say, yeah, I'm a member of such and such church, but they're not a member unless you say they are. Why? Because you're responsible for the what and the who of the gospel. When we present people for membership, we always talk about the affirmation that comes from the body. And the reason for that is this. I'm not allowed to just tell you who's a member. You're saying, based on that profession of faith, something's happened that's right and they're living according to that. People don't become members of churches unless you say they do. It's the job of every church member as they're gathered as the gathered congregation. The gathered church confirms who makes a valid profession and lives in accordance with that profession, as is the case in the binding and loosing known as church discipline when someone makes a profession and they're not living according to it. That burden and that weight and those keys are yours as you are led by the elders who are supposed to be giving you wise counsel from the word of God. These are our four details that explain as an introductory the who and the what and a little bit of the how of elder-led congregationalism. King Jesus is the head of the church. King Jesus gives elders the authority and responsibility to lead the church. King Jesus gives deacons the authority and responsibility to serve the church. And King Jesus gives the gathered congregation the authority and responsibility to bind and loose regarding the what and the who of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you all to stick in there. Stick with it. We're going to continue to explore these details thoroughly in the coming weeks and months. If you're thinking, man, I've never heard that before, it's okay, stick with it. We're going to dig in and we're going to keep looking and we're going to consider God's design together. As we transition to take the supper, which is something that we do every week, I think it's, uh, it's good to consider how it fits into God's design for his church, this supper that we're about to take. We've discussed the three offices in the church, elder, deacon, and member. And now we can consider the two ordinances of the church because they'll help us understand a little bit what we just looked at. And what I mean is this. The two ordinances of the church, baptism and the supper. Consider that baptism is the means by which you enter into God's church. It's an outward expression to the world that you are identifying with God's people and God's people are identifying with you based upon your profession of faith. When we have a baptism, we have our holy baptismal trough right here. It's a magical little trough that, that, that we do our baptisms in. It's a little bit redneck, but that's how we are around here. And someone gets into it who is making a profession of faith, and then someone who's authorized stands with them to baptize them. And what we do as a congregation is we sit and we listen. And there's either a child or an adult in this holy baptismal trough who, said, who hears questions and they give answers. And so they're in the water. They're like this. Someone says, do you have any hope outside of Jesus Christ for salvation? And the congregation's listening. And that voice says, no, I have no hope. And then there's usually another question. Do you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Savior, and your treasure? And the congregation's listening. And usually, we've never had it happen where it doesn't go this way, but someone says, yes, I trust him. And then the person authorized says, I baptize you just like Jesus said in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they come up out of the water. And what the congregation does is says, you are one of us now. 
Based on what you have said, based on how you live, we say you belong to us. We are together in Christ. And it is a beautiful thing when we see baptism because we see the word of God going forward and we see more disciples being made and you have a significant role in it to say, yes, I confirm your profession of faith. I see how you live and you are one of us. It is beautiful. It is a public expression of who you identify with in Christ. If baptism is the way which you enter into the church, the supper is the means by which you continue with the church. We're not supposed to neglect to meet together when we make such a profession. We come together regularly, and when we do, it says, when you gather, do this. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So the supper is the means by which you continue with the church. It is a public expression as well. It's not right to think, yes, we examine ourselves and we have some reflection time in the supper, but the supper isn't mostly just about you and Jesus in your little moment with your little tortilla and your little cup. The supper is is an, an expression, a very public expression of everyone who takes it. A public expression in the supper is this. It's a public expression between all the church's members that we are completely dependent upon King Jesus to know how to do anything right. We're completely dependent upon King Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Not just when we first believed and when we were baptized, but decades later, the supper says, I'm still completely dependent upon King Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, for any holiness whatsoever. It's also a public statement to continue to anticipate his return. Every time we take the supper, we know that the next time he takes it will be with us in eternity. And so we're looking back on what he's done. We're dependent upon him now. And we together are saying, we anticipate our King Jesus is coming back to take us home. That is what the supper is each week. As well, it's a public expression that we are committing to continue to examine ourselves and to keep short accounts with one another. As we distribute the elements, we want to encourage you to do just that. Spend some time considering your public expression in the supper and spend some time reflecting on what God has done to bring us together, what God intends for you to be responsible for as a member of his church, as his gathered congregation, and examine yourself to see if you're willing to walk according to his design. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to take the supper, I pray that you would be honored and glorified that we are wholehearted in our movement. I pray that the words on our lips, the expression, the confession of faith that we make is not far from our hearts. I pray that we would do as it says in the word and guard our steps right now. I pray for genuine examination, but I also pray for an awareness of the public expression that's happening when we take this supper together. Lord, you are, your ways are so much higher than our ways. Your word tells us that again and again. It says that your foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. And it says that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So King Jesus, we're completely dependent upon you for everything. Speak to us as we take this supper. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
completely dependent upon King Jesus. Take and eat. Take and drink. Leaving it up to us to just wing it, but to have some real direction from the King of Kings. We love you and praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.